Hello, Jill Mott, sommelier, the one who teaches me about wine, beers, spirits, cocktails, all the delicious things. Hello, Emily Reese. <laughs> How are you today, radio host and classical and jazz music, all the things? I'm great. Yeah, it's a beautiful day in Minneapolis, as always, really. And Wait, uh, no, it's not always a beautiful day here. I Let's know, be honest. I was being we thought optimistic. We were, that's true. We actually, we both love snow. We just yeah. don't love snow that's wet and gray and kind of n- sl- somewhat non-existent and that lasts six months. Yeah, I don't need six months of snow. And Wait, let's not talk. Let's not go Yeah, there. I know. Yeah, Okay, can I, can I, can I, <laughs> so the show this week, we're going to be talking about multiple layers. Okay. And we'll get to that. We'll tell everybody why, both musically and uh, enologically, viticulturally speaking. Oh, wow. Actually, it is yeah. enologically. It is, um, we're talking about something in the winemaking process Super here. Super nerdy. Yes, it is. But I wanted to, I wanted to just speak briefly on scores and pours for you to get to know us better oh. um, about layers. Okay. Why layers? Yeah. Well, me, Jill, Jill Mott, <laughs> I've gone through a lot of personal shit lately and it's made me realize how complex human beings are. Yeah. And like, a lot of my friends are going through stuff and granted everybody's experienced COVID and that has for the most part, you know, impacted people's lives quite somewhat gravely. Some people have thankfully found some silver lining. So there's that, there's that that's obviously affected the world. The George Floyd thing affected the world. And, but I think on the layers of humans, I've just thought, just experienced like emotionally, physically, obviously, biologically, we're super complex, but I just have really... I don't want to say enjoyed because that's not the right word, but I have found it extremely fascinating watching how I've changed over the last year and uh, sometimes a little bit for worse, but most of the time, uh, (laughs) you know, for the better. I know about worse. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends are going through different things in their life and how they're managing and, and just, you know, they call me at two in the morning or they'll call me at, you know, two in the afternoon and, and burst with whatever they're, and it's incredible to hear how people are complex and going through these changes. So that's one thing, yeah. layers of okay. complexity in the human being and anatomy. Yes. Second of all, it is my birthday in like a month from the time we're recording this. Yeah. And September 28th, send gifts. And my mom was so cute. We were, you know, we had a family gathering and she made this beautiful layered cake. Nice. This white cake, which usually is not my favorite, mm. with like a little raspberry filling. My mom used to do wedding cakes and stuff for people decorating. Yeah. And I was like, this is my favorite birthday cake. Nice. Like I was just very like happy about it. And I was like, <laughs> layers, more layers mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. So they're layered cakes. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about layered wines today. Like what? Like dumping wine on top of other wine on top of other wine. Oh, nice. And how prolific that is in the wine world and not <laughs> yeah why it comes out of function more than fashion yeah and sort of how it how it works not scientifically i'm not going to go too deep there but i'm going to talk mm-hmm. about nutrients and we've got an awesome wine to taste that's an example of that not one that people would necessarily think wow i've been talking long i'm talking emily reese talk about something what are you going to talk about i'm going to talk about how jazz works Kind of. <laughs> okay. Um, in that there's a window of time in jazz where you can kind of really understand what's happening and what they're doing. And so I'm going to talk about form, I guess, in a sense, but uh, really not get too deep into that terminology. But yeah, we're going to talk about how, how jazz works. And we're going to talk about a couple different types of tunes okay. uh, that are really popular and that thousands of other tunes have been, well, maybe not thousands, but certainly hundreds of other tunes have been written based off of, well, no, I'd say thousands. All right. So there we go. Thousands. <laughs> I remember on a few occasions, but the the first one that comes to mind is when Zach Harris, Double C, uh, who we interviewed <laughs> a uh, you know, month ago, but it just was released on our Patreon page and Spotify and all of those outlets to get our podcast. We released our interview with him and you you both talked about 
well, you know, you state the melody and then you go on and do your thing and then you state the melody again. And I think it sounds easy. Yeah. And then it sounds like, wow, I should be able to listen to any jazz tune and hear that. And then you and I had a conversation about it and you were like, okay, Jill, listen to this. And I was like, oh. And then you're like, listen how it gets like A, B and the core and then this and the core. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I was like, keep it simple. Keep it simple. But, well, but not, not necessarily for me, yeah. but like for guests, because I think this is going to be like super eye-opening for people that love jazz, but they yeah. don't know how it's constructed. Because then yeah. you're like, holy shit. Yeah. That's like light bulb shit right there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, I will be using some words. So just, I mean, that's good. That's I mean, why people listen to I'm going to teach you some new vocabulary. Uh, but also, uh, it is important to know that this is not a blueprint for all jazz because jazz is such an open definition. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, really starting from the 60s on, um, it just has gone in a thousand million different directions. And so, you know, this is... This is like if you went to a jam session, you know, if you go to a coffee shop and it's like open mic night for jazz musicians, this is pretty much how it's going to work. Okay. So it's a, it's, um, yeah. So that may help. I I don't want to say that if you listen to this. Yeah, blanket statement. This is what jazz means. Yeah. So I just want to be careful about that. But, but yeah. So um, I'd really love to really drink some wine, honestly. Her usual, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Ms. M- Emily Reese. Speaking of drinking wine, before I crank open this bottle, yeah. Thank you, patrons. Yes, for allowing us to keep on keeping on with this podcast. One of the main things we use that money for is we're buying wine, we're buying mics, we're constantly updating our studio equipment. Yeah, and so thank you so much for. Being a part of uh, Scores and Pours, we couldn't do this without you. Well, and let's be clear. We, we buy wine specifically for the podcast. We don't just go out and buy oh, yeah. ourselves <laughs> wine yes, with yes. The, the support of our patrons. But we are able to, you know, really get a good sense of what wines we might be able to get in for future episodes. And it's really helpful. That said, we could definitely always use support. Because, you know, as Jill also mentioned, we do update our equipment. We get mics, we get hard drives, we get storage online, we get all the things. So, um, yeah, we'd you, love to have your help. You can do that on patreon.com slash scores and pours. We make it really easy. There are tiers that you can join. In all cases, you get patron-only content, which we're going to seafood quite soon, which we're very excited about. (laughs) And you get food and wine pairings. You get a recipe. You get suggestions for wine. And then we also, of course, it wouldn't be complete without the music. Yeah. Because who likes to cook without some music, right? And in some cases, some tiers, you actually get some free merch that we'll uh, hand deliver or send your way depending on where you're located. So patreon.com slash scores and pours. Yes. <laughs> Emily really didn't want to do that together. I don't because usually when people repeat things like that, they want to go patreon.com slash scores and pours. And I've just had... We've said it like 19 uh, times, yeah. so the now Patreon should pay us for that yeah, placement. Exactly. That's how that should go. <laughs> we're also, we're on Instagram at scores and pours. You can DM us there with show ideas, give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter at scores and pours. Well, let's drink some wine. Wow. Pretty. I won't tell you about the wine yet because I don't want to spill all the beans. I will say that we're drinking a wine from Emilia Romagna in northern central Italy. Yes. uh, That has many layers. There are many vintages in this wine. And I'll muse on that in mere moments. Two scores and pours. Two scores and pours. It's got like a dark golden color. It looks like a dessert wine slash a sauterne or a Pinot de Chirance, like an aperitivo type of wine in with the color, right? Yeah. Or like Goldilocks hair. Sure. Not like blonde, but like golden blonde. Yeah, definitely golden. Yeah, like cartoon blonde hair. It's pretty aromatic. I'd say it jumps out of the glass, but in a way that is a subtle jump. It's yeah. like a hopscotch as opposed to a pole vault, maybe, yeah. or a long jump. It's a very gentle floral smell. I think. Mm, yeah, like bruised flowers almost, like yeah. meadow. Like it smells wet, like a yeah. wet meadow. Yeah. Mmm, mm, says Jill. 
I smell like some fresh walnuts. I actually, oh. a friend dropped off for me to taste for the first time this past week, fresh walnuts, like un, not dried walnuts. Wow. I was like, here, have this Tupperware. And I was like, that's weird. Thank you. And I've been like nibbling on them over the past week. Hmm. And they're weird and they're delicious. Yeah. And they're, they smell kind of like apples, but walnuts. Interesting. Just the smallest amount of like nuts shell kind of thing, like nut skin kind of thing. A lot of bruised stone fruits. Yeah, fruitiness in that way. Like if citrus would have been like cooked for a while, so it kind of loses that bright citrusy yeah, flavor, but it's kind of now it's got maybe a little butter in it mm-hmm. and it's going to go on something. Peach, I get peach a oh, little. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. The finish is great. Yeah. N- nice, bountiful acid, but that's not yeah. too, it's like in check. Almost no tannin. Yeah. Mm-mm. I love it when you mm. agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. And I'm, I'm, you know, and as you know, I do that when, not when you're right. I do that when I honestly agree with you. I'm not yeah. just being like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I know. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to tell you more about this producer. The gentleman is named Federico Orsi. And I'll tell you more about Federico after you grace me with some music. Well... ladies and gentlemen again Emily Reese is cracking herself up over there I do that often so when Dixieland started in the early 1900s it it, they started this practice of playing the melody and then someone would start maybe improvising over the melody while somebody else played another melody underneath that or something called a counter melody so Eventually, over the years, that became kind of a standard way to play jazz. People would, let's say there's a pianist, a bass player, and a drummer, okay? Okay. The piano player plays the melody and some chords in their left hand. The bass player plays the foundation of the harmony. Makes sense. And the drummer, of course, plays the rhythm, right? Keeps Mm -hmm. time. Yep. So... When they decide to start a tune, they pick the tune, whatever song it is going to be, mm-hmm. and then the piano player will play that melody once or twice, and then solo over that melody as many times as they want. And when you mean over that melody, obviously they're they're probably not playing the melody at the same time as they're soloing, so you Correct. mean like where we could, as you stated to me before, where we could hum the melody. Yes. Because it's in our head because we just heard it, even though it's not being played. The the bass is consistent. The yes. rhythm is consistent. And that person's just deciding, I'm taking a solo. Yes. Okay. And they decide how many times they're going to repeat that pattern until everybody's done. Everybody has their solos, or maybe the bass player doesn't want to take a solo. Maybe the drummer doesn't want to take a solo. And then the pianist plays the melody again to symbolize this is the end now. Okay. So if all of that is too much to wrap your head around, let's listen to a tune to make it kind of come home. Uh, So what we're going to listen to is, I think, one of the most recognizable forms for people who don't even know they know it is a 12-bar blues. It's such a ubiquitous series of chords in a very specific, you know, time frame, 12 measures. Okay. And it's used, of course, in the uh, world of blues. Like, you know, if you go down south and go to a blues bar, they're playing the blues. They're yep. going to be playing a lot of these structured tunes. Mm-hmm. And you hear it all over jazz. You hear it in, like, boogie-woogie. You hear it in a lot of different places. So let's listen to a, a tune that is structured on this same roadmap of the blues. It's a, a tune by Clifford Brown, who we've talked we about. Him. Yep. Uh, and this is a tune called Sandu. So what you're going to hear is you're going to hear them, you're going to hear Clifford and the tenor saxophonist play the melody twice, and then Clifford Brown is going to take a solo. So when we get to the solo, then we'll start singing the tune together, you and me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we repeat the melody again. Mm-hmm. 
we're going to be able to sing that melody while Clifford Brown takes his solo, which starts now. I'm kind of like trying. You're doing a better job. I'm kind of soloing, which is not good. Now we start again. Okay, I hear you. So they just do this over and over and over again. And so Clifford is going to stop his solo at the end of this 12 measures. Okay. So when Harold Land starts, he's going to take what we call two choruses, which is what Clifford Brown just did. So when I say take a chorus, that's one round of that 12-measure roadmap that I just talked to you about. Soloing, yeah. Yeah, soloing. So what the part where you can sing the melody underneath, but somebody is actually improvising through that. Got you. So So that'd be one chorus. Then you go back to the beginning for two choruses. You can take 27 choruses. You can take as many choruses as you want. It's just up to how you're communicating with your bandmates and things like that. Cool. So it's not like we think in the R&B or the pop world, you think of a chorus as like, oh, that's the the main you know, uh, lines of a song yeah. that they're usually named off of or something like that. It's yeah. not that, it's the solo that's happening in the yep, usually it, the middle of the tune. It just gotcha. means something a little different in jazz. Yeah. Cool, that's so, beautiful. It's awesome. Yeah, and so, you know, basically with this tune, um, Clifford Brown takes a couple of choruses, then Harold Land takes two choruses, then the pianist, Richie Powell, takes two choruses. Richie Powell was in the car with Clifford Brown when they both perished in the car accident in 56, but... Uh, but Richie Powell takes two choruses. The bass player takes one chorus. Okay. Uh, but before that, I, I left off the drummer Max Roach takes two choruses. So everybody in this tune gets a little shot. And then they play the melody again twice at the end. Do you mind if we fast forward and just listen to the start, at least, of Max Roach's Oh, for sure. Getting yeah, it? for sure. bass solo, just one chorus. <laughs> yeah, I love how he doesn't really solo, he's just playing the... <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and now restating. Yep, yeah. now we're restating this twice and then it's, it's done. And so, that's a you know, pretty famous tune that Clifford Brown wrote using the blues form, the 12-bar blues. So we'll hear one more 12-bar blues in, in a minute just to, yeah. Emily Reese, making jazz not only digestible but educational. I do my best. Who wants to travel to Brazil? I, who wouldn't? I mean, Federico wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> he hails from Emilia Romagna, and he went to Brazil. He, you know, got an MBA... And he was partway through that process, and wine has always been in and around his family's life. He got the opportunity to taste a lot of uh, great Burgundies and stuff like that with his mom and I think his uncle or something. And a winery went up for sale in his area, and the name of the winery is what we're tasting now, Agricola San Vito. And he was like, I should buy that winery. And his family was like, yeah, you should. And he was like, I was kind of kidding. And they were like, no, you really should. Like, we all love wine. You know about wine. He started to drink a lot more wine when he was, you know, in his early 20s. But my guess is he grew up with it. So it wasn't like when we all turned 21 and we're like, let's drink out of the bottle. I mean, I do still drink out of the bottle sometimes. But (laughs) you know what I mean? Like partying, right? Yeah. And so in 2005, he decides after trying to convince his family that he shouldn't buy the vineyard that he was jokingly saying he was going to buy, that he would buy it 
They all supported him. His mom supported him. Then he uttered, listen, if I, uh, five years, give me five years. And if I don't, can't turn a profit or this isn't working, I'm going to sell it. They all were like, great. So he starts, you know, he's decides to, I think he was trying to work part-time or full-time and then run this winery on the side. And just like anybody knows, a lot of my dear friends that are winemakers now full-time, they started trying to have the full-time job and then managing and owning a winery and, you know, harvesting and all that stuff. And they'd save their vacation Mm. to take it all for, you know, the month or two months during harvest. He, so he, I think was doing that and it just became more and more a part of his life. And finally he left that job, that area. And I think it was finance or something like that. And he decided to go all in on making wine. Now, at first it wasn't, he had like a little bit of a natural approach, but not much. He didn't want to be natural just for natural's sake. He he came, he watched Mondovino, which you've seen before. Yeah. Um, a great film that basically talks about the little guys and talks about farming. And through that, he became familiar with biodynamics and, you know, kind of a more overall Uh, overarching natural approach to making wine. And he would link up with a lot of different, not only vine growers in the area, but also growers of cereals and, you know, fruits and stuff. And biodynamics became kind of his MO. And he went all in. He started a farmer's market that was based off of the slow food movement, um, which is, you know, all of the products have to have something that is, you know, they have to be special to a region. They have to be, in some cases, like verging on extinction. So they need help bringing them back. Mm. And he would go sell his wine at this farmer's market like once or twice a week. And it started out, this wine that we're drinking is called Posca Bianca. This originally started as a wine in 2008, where he he didn't call it Posca Bianca at the time. And he would bring his wine to sell in bulk at the farmer's market. And he was like, bring your bottles, or you can buy a bottle for me, or you can bring a bigger, bigger vessel. But his goal was to not be selling his bottles of wine because he was thinking about back in 2000 probably eight, I think, he was thinking about the carbon footprint of wine and how much does it cost to make a bottle? How much does it cost to make a cork? How much does it cost to make the foil? All that stuff, right? And then he's like, well, he started to think about a lot of local restaurants liked his wine and wanted to support him. So he's like, well, I'm going to do bag in the box. Well, then he started to, he was like, mm. well, the, the, cause he can do it in a bigger size format. Right. And it's less waste, but he's like, I hate the plastic. There's a plastic bag. There's a plastic nozzle that doesn't get recycled. And he was all bent out of shape about it. <laughs> but instead of doing three liter bo- boxes, he was like, I'll do 10 and 20 liter boxes. That'll help things out. <laughs> okay. Well think of putting a 20 liter box in a refrigerator. He decided to kind of settle in on the 10 liter was like the best size. It it was still big for a fridge, right? But it fit in the fridge. (laughs) And then he, at that time, if you're filling 10 liters at a time, that's kind of a a lot. And he'd be like, he, at the time he had like a a 2008, I think was the vintage that was sitting in a vessel that he would bottle from. And in comes the 2009 harvest. Now you are making your 2009 wine and you're like, oh, well, I don't have space for all this. And there's that vessel with some 2,000 ounces, dump it in there. (laughs) Now, this is where the function over fashion happens is a lot of people may go into it wanting to create a complex sort of house profile. And in this case, that wasn't the situation. He was like, I'm going to dump it in there. Okay, 2010 comes around. He's like, well, people love that. And I have like, you know, I will just say half of my container. I'll just dump my 2010, part of my 2010 in there. Well, lo and behold, this wine became kind of popular. And this is now, I just want to kind of get right off of his story for a second and say that there are myriad regions in the world that are known for this style of wine, whether it was intentional or not. You have multiple vintages, you have multiple styles in some case, and you're trying to, sometimes you're trying to make something homogenous, the Emily Reese blend. Yeah. And then that it's always going to taste like the Emily Reese blend. And then sometimes you're just like, oh, this is a vessel that I'm dumping stuff into. And then it ends up being like, wow, this is really singular and this is kind of like about a little bit about like who I am, my mojo. And I'll go more into other styles of around the world that oh, use neat. this. Can we break it up with a little jazz first? Yeah, I'd love that. Do you want to listen to another blues? Sure. Yeah, I think that's probably easiest for listeners to keep it simple right now and then go off onto something else. Yeah. This is a tune that 
a very famous pianist named Thelonious Monk wrote, and it's a blues. So it, each statement of the melody lasts 12 measures. And this one starts with Monk on the piano playing it by himself. And then the instrumentalists come in and they play it twice also. So we actually hear the melody three times in this one, uh, just to really hammer it home before they all start taking their choruses. Started over. Little sax coming to help him out. Yep, little Johnny Griffin on the saxophone. And I think this is kind of funny because I think that Monk intended for Johnny to start start his solo after this, but Johnny doesn't do that, and so Johnny just starts to play the melody again on his saxophone. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And now Johnny's going to start his solo. Otherwise known as his chorus, am I right? Am I yes, right? chorus one. Yes. <laughs> and so that melody can just be played over and over in your head throughout all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or just let Johnny Griffin do it. Exactly, just let him improvise. And how many people take choruses slash solos on this song, if you you know off the top of your head? This is an eight and a half minute track. I'm not entirely sure how many choruses everybody takes, but, or even if everybody takes one. But quite a few of them take, take a round at it. Several. Okay. Now, of course, the point, as you're a soloist, improvising over that melody and harmony, it's harmony, uh, you know, you're trying to be interesting about it or clever mm-hmm. or tell some kind of a story. The phrasing, too. You've phrasing. talked about the phrasing being really important in jazz and classical music. Yes, and it's a little, I mean, it's kind of a, sim- it's a similar concept in jazz, but it's executed very differently in, a, in an improvised solo than it is in a, you know, Beethoven symphony, but phrasing that is, but but you know, it's a matter of intensity you know, are you dialing up the intensity the more choruses you take and then kind of coming back down, I mean there are all kinds of really great examples of how to do that Can we go to the beginning again and I want to ask you a question about the bass line. Yes, so yeah listen to the left hand if you can if you can separate that out, listen to the low notes that Monk is playing in the piano one segment in my mind. Yep. Okay, so those aren't key changes. What are those called? Like when they're going from one to the other, Yes. they're doing what? Well, they're chord changes. Chord changes, thank you. Yep. So, you know, So are the chord changes normally... Because we're, as we listen to the song... Yeah. You know, what you'd stated was we hear this melody... Mm Mm-hmm through the whole piece we could hum the melody and of course we can do that because the the chords stay the, the chord changes stay the same is that consistent with quote unquote like 12 bar blues yes okay yes those chord changes are going to repeat as many times as you repeat them the till the song ends right ladies and gentlemen Jomont. yes okay. <laughs> so okay. if we looked at the music for this particular tune blue monk 
we would see what's you'd be given what's called a lead sheet. So it's one piece of paper, one eight and a half by eleven, with twelve measures on it, the melody written in there, and chord symbols up above each measure that needs one, mm -hmm. if unless it repeats, right? So, so you would see like B flat seven, E flat seven. Yeah, I get it. B flat seven F that. So okay, awesome. That's all you would get is that one sheet, and then that that's when you play the melody, and then those little chord changes tell you what how to improvise, and it tells the bass player how to play the bass. You know, the bass yeah, player doesn't I, get music. The drummer doesn't get music. Yeah. Nobody gets music that tells them really exactly what to do. It's just a guide, right? Yeah. So yeah. I yeah. get that. I yeah. get that. Way to hear that, though, because that's the pattern of the blues. Well, you know what may fit on a sheet of paper, <laughs> maybe, are the list of wine regions where this is intentionally done, like the sherry oh. region okay. or the style of wine from Andalusia and southern Spain that is a fortified wine from that region that is intentionally blended to homogenize so that every time you go and have Fino Sherry from this house or Oloroso Sherry from that house, it's going to be the same. Now, the tale of Sherry is, it's a lot more complicated than the story of this awesome, humble Orsi Vigneto San Vito, Posca Bianco, because late 1700s, early 1800s, there was this big issue in the Sherry region about the small grower slash winemaker and what they wanted to do, and then people like big companies that had money and wanted and had all these stocks, they were able to hold all these stocks and make something delicious out of it, of course, but it dealt with having enough stock in place to be able to say, you know, throughout the ages in Sherry to say, you have to have this much wine in order to be called Sherry. You can only be you know, a sherry house, if you have uh, 10,000 liters or something like that, which for a lot of the small guys was, yeah. was too big um, and 10,000 liters, that's not right. Just to let everybody know, but it's like a, it's like a huge, it's like a hundred thousand. It's like a huge yeah. amount of wine. But in the end we get this homogenous, beautiful wine that is, you know, you get Oloroso, you know what you're getting. Champagne, very similar. They've learned that after centuries of making wine there, that the climate was so erratic and it was cool and then it'd be warmer that the best way to make something dependable year in and year out was to combine vineyards, combine grape varietals, and to combine harvests, like vintages, right? So you'd end up, then when bubbles are incorporated, it's like, oh, I want Moet and Chandon, which is a huge producer, or I want Barèche, a, a smaller house. You're getting, every time you buy brush, brush is going to taste the same, or it should, right? Then there might be minute batch differences, but to the person who's not drinking brush, you know, like every day, which is at $70 a bottle, pretty much no one <laughs> these days, um, you know, they've, they've, they're going for consistency. Now, one would argue that the, you're getting not only a dependable product, but you're getting a really consistent product, right, with sherry and champagne. Sure. In this case, you know, this is more, I think, granted those were both born out of just chance circumstances with what was happening historically, as well as in the fields and behind the, the curtain of money. But in this case, and in many other cases around the world, Spain, even the U.S., people are learning that, wow, you know, you can, it's, it's not always about capturing the single vintage and what the, did the vintage taste like? What does Trousseau Gris taste like on its own in stainless steel from this vineyard year in and year out? Fun, delicious. Yeah. But like there's this idea of creating a, a house style of a different nature, something that's emblematic of, of course, the grapes and the vessels that are around and the vintages, but also like the winemaker, like why are they do why are they making these decisions? And here in this, in this situation, just a little backstory, because you can you can look on the back label and it tells you when it was bottled. And so here this says uh, December of 2020. So we know that this has juice in it from 2019 back approximately, he started it five or so years ago. So this has about five to six vintages in it, which That's is really amazing. cool. Yeah. And when people ask him, how does he decide what to do? He'll be like, well, you know, the wine was really kind of tasted tired and 
So I wanted something that was really crisp and really kind of alive. And so I wanted a newer wine, but with some skin contact. So I put some Malvasia that was really fresh with skin contact in it that was in stainless steel or concrete or, oh, I wanted a little bit more depth. And so I added one that was done in Amphor. So he's really kind of saying, what does the wine need? It, it kind of goes sometimes against what people think of terroir and, you know, this certain site needs to taste like this. But I think it's really beautiful to think someone is has the ability and, and the know-how and also is kind of going, you know, they're embracing risk. Yeah. And they're, because he, he has learned like when to add things. Like you can't just be like, I want to taste wine today. And then you go in and you're like, I want to add that. Because sometimes you add it and you're not adding it at the right time. Sure. Now, I, and he probably would agree with this because he works in biodynamics, think that has a lot to do with what's happening upstairs in mm -hmm. the whole celestial camp. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that's like, Wow. Right? Yeah. So Posca Bianco, Posca, was the daily ration of wine accorded to Roman soldiers. And so I think not only is this probably a ration of wine for one person, I'm just kidding, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's a, a regular sized bottle of wine, but it's, it kind of goes back to that, like you're giving the wine the ration that it needs yeah. when it needs it, which is cool. It's a blend of grapes native to the area, 15 to 40 year old vines. One is called Pignoletto, and they're, they showcase Pignoletto. They make a couple different wines that are only Pignoletto, sparkling, and it's just like, take me here. I want to eat bread and food, pasta, cheese all yeah. day, yeah. and drink Pignoletto. There's Alionza, native to the area. There's Malvasia, which we know that Malvasia is a centuries-old grape. It comes from everywhere, <laughs> so this is likely a local clone of Malvasia. And then a, another local grape, which you can find in a single varietal format. It's only almost only ever been boring to me. But Albana, which probably stretches the blend a little bit, gives it like a crispness and a little bit of like, like a bulbous nature perhaps in the mid-palate. But like those four together have just created, and sometimes it's he's adding blends, sometimes he's adding... One, so this is a blend of all of those because he's always like, okay. oh, I'm going to add that grape that's in that vessel Interesting. today. Yeah. And But sometimes he's adding stuff he's already blended. I don't think so. I think that he's adding wines that are varietal wines that are in certain vessels so he can kind of be hyper aware of what, how much of what is, yeah. is contributing X to a blend. Mm-hmm. I did say that there are currently six vintages in this bottle. There are actually currently nine vintages in the Posca Whoa. white. And when I say he started bottling it five or so years ago, before that, he was selling it in bulk. So all of that, then he started to bottle. So I was, gotcha. I was kind of getting ahead of myself with the math. He has a red, a Posca um, Rosso, that is about 11 vintages old, Neat. which is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he does about... I don't know, 5 to 10% is what he'll extract at a time in bottle, mm -hmm. and then he'll add that in. So it's really, a, I think, a beautiful, like, how much is he bottling? He's probably like, oh, the U.S. needs this much, and Japan needs this much, and, you know, my farmer's market needs this much. And, but he never lets that go, you know, to more than 10%. And maybe sometimes he's like, yo, you can't have it right now because it, <laughs> it's tasting a certain way and I need to make sure that with this grape, it's great. I just love how it's yeah. a very thoughtful process. A very curated, like, yeah, no, it's like you're nurturing this this thing along over years and years and years mm -hmm. as opposed to one year at a time. That's so cool. Now, what do you what do you think about the wine and glean from it now that you know a little bit about what it is and how it was made? I think that he should sell it in prepackaged syringes. So <laughs> <laughs> but then you wouldn't smell the complexity, Emily Reese. Good point, good point. No, it's um, it's it's got all that fruit to it, but it, you also can taste, I, I really think, like a maturity there that you wouldn't get if this were like a 2020 white wine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's, there's... Of course, or even an old bur older Burgundy, you know? Yeah. That's, that's got oak and... Yeah. It just, it, it does have like this, I guess maturity is the word I keep coming up with that, yeah, it just seems like it, it's been around the block and you know, just, in the best way. To tag you know? team, yeah. I have wisdom comes up. Like it, yeah. it doesn't taste young and it doesn't taste old. Like, you know, the best exactly. wise people that I know are young at heart and this has 
that brightness and it does have that sprightly nature that you can tell there's new wine in here. It's not tired in the least. You got mm-hmm. plenty of acidity, but you do have those mature notes of skin contact, amphora, old oak in some cases. Yeah. As I'm listening to the jazz, yeah. especially like, you know, I listen to Monk mm-hmm. and I hear that same sort of wisdom Right now, I know that Monk lived, you know, he was went around the block a time or two, but there's like this timelessness to his music, mm-hmm. like this flavor, right? Yeah. And I know we won't, ti- timeless is kind of another topic, so I don't need to go there for too long, but there is this sound that I could play that Thelonious Monk tune to my nieces and they dance around. Oh, yeah. And I could also play it for my dad and he'd like, geek out on it yeah right so it's so cool so can we can we jazz some more i want to hear oh, more yeah now teach yeah. me more so when i was talking about the blues before and i kept saying 12 bar blues that means there's 12 measures right 12 measures that repeat over and over and over and over again those 12 measures have a melody that goes with them that then is played but then drops out while the soloists happen right yep and underneath that the whole time the Harmony is repeating this 12-measure pattern, okay? We're going to move on now to something called rhythm changes, not named because they have anything to do with what you think of the word as rhythm, but they come from a tune called I Got Rhythm, which is a really famous tune that George Gershwin wrote in 1930. It was just a pop song, and it became so famous, and jazz musicians started using the harmonies from that tune to write new melodies. That's a technique called a contrafact, actually, (laughs) just in case you want to know that fancy word. But they took the chord changes from the the song called I Got Rhythm. They took those harmonies and, you know, chord changes and wrote new melodies over them. And this has been done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's one of the most famous sets of chord changes in all of jazz outside of the 12-bar blues. And so bar blues, 12 measures long, rhythm changes significantly longer. It's 32 measures long. And that 32 measures is split into, if you divide 32 by four, you get, or you, by four, you get eight. So there's four eight-bar sections. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? So again, with the understanding that Every time I say rhythm change it, it has, it has nothing to do with tempo or meter or rhythm or anything. It's just named after the song, I Got Rhythm. Let's listen to the melody and the tune itself, I Got Rhythm, so you can understand what that song sounds like. the end of the first 32 bars. And, and so, so that the rhythm changes that have happened, they've taken that and then they've gone and put it, it's got the same, what we could all hum, do, 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 yeah. do, but it's a different melody. Yep. But it's got those rhythm changes, which in my like elementary music brain, I go, okay, so they're using rhythm where I want to use the word chord because it's named after I got rhythm. Rhythm changes. Chord changes. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. But a very specific set of chord changes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Not not one that their people are gonna go and be like, oh, let's just go do that. I mean, maybe people have, but I get I get what you mean. Yeah. It can be altered. So let's listen to some really famous examples of tunes that were written using these chord changes. Cool. So I'm pretty sure that you've heard the song Straighten Up and Fly Right. Oh, Have you yeah. heard that song? Mm-hmm. Matt King Cole wrote that song, and it's one of his favorite, one of his uh, one of his first hits. Actually, was this tune that he wrote, and we'll hear it played on the tenor saxophone. And this tune uses those chord, cha- chord changes from that song that George Gershwin wrote called "I Got Rhythm." So, let's listen to this version of "Straighten Up and Fly Right," and we'll be able to sing "I Got Rhythm" underneath it the whole time. Bum, 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 bum,
That's so great. That's so cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's awesome to hear that. Yeah. Because I have heard them both of these songs, but I don't, you know, I don't even really think, I mean, I right. thought they sound similar. Yeah. But I didn't know that they were chord changes, meaning that rhythm changes and that they were, it's basically the same undertone. Yep. Or under melody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Probably the most famous example that everyone knows is Meet the Flintstones. Meet the Flint's, the theme song for the Flintstones is based off of rhythm changes. Okay, well, we have to listen to that right now. Yeah, it goes really fast, though, so it's, it's much faster than, than, you know, what the original tune went, that's for sure. Um, so that's tricky. It, it, it goes, like, really, really fast. But here we go. This is the Flintstones theme played by Clark Terry, who's a trumpeter. Holy shit. Whoa. That's crazy. That's so cool. So You're right, it does go by fast. It goes by fast, and then Clark Terry is going to take a solo. So, you know, if you walked into a, again, if you, like, walk into a jazz, a jam session, open mic night for jazz musicians at the local coffee house, you know, and somebody's like, hey, I want to play Olio by Sonny Rollins. And you're like, oh, I don't really know that tune. And they're like, oh, well, it's rhythm changes. And you're like, oh, well, I know those because you've been playing jazz for a while and you just know tunes based off of rhythm changes. Yeah. And you just Gosh, can and that's play so crazy the tune. That they, that's so crazy that that's specific to one set of changes. That's, yeah. cool. that's cool. Yeah, there are, I mean, Dizzy Gillespie wrote tunes based off of rhythm changes. Duke Ellington, Miles Davis wrote a couple. Sonny Rollins, like I just mentioned. I mean, oh. the Lester Young, the list goes on and on and on. And I mean, of course, people nowadays definitely write rhythm changes tunes, and there are all kinds of fun variations that you can do where you could be like, well, this is based off of rhythm changes, but we're going to do this part a little different. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's like super common. Now, that being said, I've shown you the 12 bar blues. I've shown you the 32 bar rhythm changes. But just know there are many ways to write jazz tunes, but that a lot of times what they're really doing is just melody, solo melody. Well, I mean, and that's the same with this style of wine, right? There are, there's the homogenation piece, there's the function before fashion, and then we split off into that you have like the winemakers just desire to like play but also really hone in on you're not trying to create a uh, one profile you're you're up for the changes you're up for something new and that's what i love about you know if we if we envision a vessel imagine a ball jar that's 90% full of something that's you know, both young and old, but there's the majority of stuff is two to three plus years old. And then you go add this new juice to it. Well, the new juice sort of just like, you know, I'm, I'm old. I think I'm kind of, kind of, I'm in my forties. And every time I hang out with my nieces, I do feel younger. You know, they bring yeah. something to the world and this is no different, right? So this is the nutrients in that young wine is feeding the old wine. It's also, in a way, protecting the old wine because it's got acidity. A lot of times it's got a lower pH, higher acidity, so it's helping a little bit. Maybe there's some skin contact for, or for antioxidants, who knows. But by and large, you're adding this new nutrients. Now, then the mother batch is accepting. Like, does it accept? And that's where I think he is creating a really awesome wine because he's saying, is the mother batch going to accept this in a way then the new batch is like becoming one with and learning from the old batch right like my nieces they're always like tia jill we have so much fun with you like we always do fun things and we always like we go to the art museum we do the these all these things and like we make even peanut butter and jellies different and stuff like that and it's so cute but the, you know they're learning from me and i think new wine learns something from the old wine, right? It melds a certain way. It doesn't just become this like bright, easy thing that gets shoved to market and then it's, you know, 15 or $20 and 
chug it. It just becomes something so much more. And that's what I really love about this Posca Bianco. He always bottles this unfined and unfiltered and mm. almost always has since about the 2008 or nine vintage that he started working with this. And then there's always low to no sulfur additions. And if it is done, it's only at bottling. So sometimes he'll taste and be like, mm, this this wine doesn't need any sulfur added. And then sometimes he'll add it and be like, mm, mm. I'd rather save the batch and add a touch, uh, mm, which mm-hmm. is which is really, really awesome. Um, any final thoughts about the the Posca Bianco? I love how it tastes fresh, but that has that age in it. I think that's my favorite part about it is that, you know, I love the crispness of white wine, but you know, as it ages, it just gains this different depth, and this wine has both of those things, which I really enjoy. Well, to a great melange of layers that only the best jazz musicians can do and to the same with wine with layers and added complexity to scores and pours to scores and pours and the Flintstones thank you for listening to this episode of scores and pours with me Joe Mott and Ms. Emily Reese. You can find a wine list and a playlist and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You will also find on that website a link to our merchandise, which includes hoodies and tees and stickers and stuff. We are on Instagram and Twitter at scores and pours. It's a great place to get in touch with us, send us a DM or something along those lines and give us a show idea or ask us a question. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by purchasing their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese, our producer is Sam Keenan. Hi, Sammy. Hey. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. Oh, June.